welcome to City Breaks Edinburgh, Episode 4. I'm Marion Jones. Falcha. Welcome. That's welcome in Gaelic, I think. I did consult the internet on how to pronounce it, but I'm still a bit baffled because that's really not how you spell it. Anyway, the sentiment is real, even if the pronunciation is slightly dodgy. OK, so the Royal Mile. We've been to Edinburgh Castle in Episode 2. We've been to Holyrood in Episode 3. And as you'll know, if you've been to Edinburgh or indeed have consulted a map, there's a road that joins the two and that's known as the Royal Mile. For this episode, I'm going to focus on the big events in history which are connected with it, and in fact I'll be coming back to the Royal Mile next episode, which is going to be called The Old Town, and in that we'll have a look at more how ordinary folk got on over the centuries in that same street. OK, so, 1639, one James Howell went to Edinburgh and wrote letters home, in which he put the following. One of the fairest streets that I ever saw. It is about a mile long, coming sloping down from the castle to Holyrood House, now the Royal Palace. And these two begin and terminate the town. Exactly so, although we must add that after James Howell was writing, Newtown was built. So you can't say quite the same today. Another visitor, also in the 17th century, was one Sir William Brereton, who wrote about it in his diary, and who thought that one of the lovely things about this road was the fact that it's a hill the castle at the top, sloping all the way down to Holyrood at the bottom, or as he put it, sufficiently sloping to give a graceful ascent to the great street. Something else impressed him, and that was the fact that it was paved. Sounds a bit obvious today, but in the times when practically nowhere was, what a relief it would be to find somewhere you could walk up and down. That wasn't very muddy, having been churned about by other people's feet, horses, etc., etc. He wrote, It is the best paved street that I have seen. The middle of the street is a fair, spacious and capacious walk. This street is the glory and beauty of this city. Okay, so that was then. What about now? I think it's still the glory and beauty of the city, actually, although the rough guide has a little bit of something slightly more cynical to add. Yes, yes, it says, it is a veritable feast of architectural heritage. It is chock full of sights and attractions. But, says their writer, it is also the place where you will find, quote, the inexhaustible knitwear, tartan and shortbread outlets, which, along with the ever-present bagpiper, draw tourists here in their droves. Well, call me a tourist, but I think it's very nice when you first arrive in Edinburgh to wander up or down the Royal Mile and hear some of those bagpipes. No question, you are in Scotland. I keep referring to the Royal Mile, but in fact it's actually four different streets. It's got different names as you walk along. So I thought let's start the episode with a little tour from top to bottom, just telling you what they all are and how each one has a slightly different characteristic. If you start at the top, where the castle is, the castle esplanade and walk down, you are on Castle Hill, the oldest, narrowest part And that remains the case until you get down to a big building you can't possibly miss, St John's Kirk, formerly a church but now in fact renamed as The Hub and the centre of everything festival, place to buy tickets to get information etc. You cannot, as they say, miss it. As soon as you are downhill from The Hub, you are on Lawn Market. Lawn Market being a corruption of the word Land Market because this is the area that was formerly very much the marketplace. 
Today, you're flanked on both sides by those big old 17th century buildings, many of them very close together with little gaps between known as closes, which lead off downhill towards Newtown on the left-hand side as you walk down or towards the grass market on the right-hand side. Steep, narrow little streets in which it's quite easy to imagine dark deeds being done. Going quite steeply downhill, some of them are steps of steps and some of them open out into little courtyards. James's Court, for example, which was very fashionable in the 18th century and where one James Boswell lived and was visited by one Samuel Johnson. Another building to look out for on the lawn market is Deacon Brodie's Tavern. Yes, a pub, with a plaque on it telling you about Deacon Brodie, one of the city's most infamous characters, who was, quoting from the plaque, an upright citizen by day and a burglar by night. And if you have a look at the pub signs, you'll find there are two, one showing him in one light and the other showing him as a burglar believed to be the real-life character who was perhaps the basis for Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde. And if you pop into the pub, you'll find there's a mural telling his story. I'm going to tell his story, which is quite extraordinary, in next week's episode. So for the moment, let's continue our wander down towards the cathedral, St Giles, and set just behind that Parliament Square, which is where the old Scottish Parliament met until 1707, a building which is in fact now the High Court. And just outside St Giles also, the Mercat Cross, a big stone cross with quite a history to it, which I'll come back to in a minute. So, once we're downhill from St Giles, we're on the High Street, where you will find another pub with a bit of a story, the Mitre Pub. There's a plaque on that too, which tells you about somebody who lived on this site and provides a good indication of the turbulent religious unrest which split Edinburgh in two and happened very close to here. The plaque there will tell you that one John Spottiswood, who was Bishop of St Andrews, lived here. He was a royalist under James VI, and when he became James II of England, and under Charles I as well. And as the plaque tells us, he loyally supported the King's Book of Common Prayer in Scotland. And what that means is he was on one side of the argument about who was going to run religion in Scotland. As the plaque explains, this cost him his life. Quote, Following the riots in Edinburgh in 1637, he fled to Newcastle. So once it became clear that the people who didn't want King Charles's Book of Common Prayer in Scotland were going to prevail, he feared for his life. You're not actually looking at the building where he lived because that burnt down in 1814 and was replaced by the one you are looking at, the Mitre Bar. And the plaque continues with one of those little tidbits from history that may or may not be true, but may well entice you into that pub rather than a different one. It reads, Legend has it that the bishop's throne is buried under the bar area, and some say his spirit still walks the pub. And still on the high street, a little bit further downhill, on your left, the John Knox House, home to the 16th century religious firebrand John Knox, the one who argued with Mary Queen of Scots. I'll come back to that story in a minute, so for now, I'll just say that apparently, when you reach the John Knox house, you are on the halfway point of the Royal Mile. A little further down again, you come to the junction with Geoffrey Street and St Mary Street, at which, if you look down, you will find brass sets in the road, outlining the structure of the old city gate, because that was the boundary. You are coming out of Edinburgh, if you cross that road, and into a completely different borough called Canongate, controlled by the Abbey of Holyrood. 
and Callangate is the name given to the last bit of the Royal Mile. It will take you all the way down to Holyrood House. You'll pass Callangate Kirk on your left, and by the time you're down at that end, you have walked. I can't find a precise distance. It's either a mile and an eighth, or possibly a mile and a quarter. Anyway, a little bit more than an actual mile. So, let's go back to some of the places I've just mentioned, which have lots of interesting tales attached to them. If you are arranging to meet someone who doesn't know Edinburgh very well, then suggesting the Mercap Cross would always be a good idea. And as you make your way there, you might be wondering what Mercat actually means. Well, I have read that it is Scots for market. And indeed, it was exactly here where markets were held. The monarch granted permission to hold a market or a fair. Its first mention of that is 1365. And the cross itself marks the spot where goods would be brought into the borough. Perhaps they'd been shipped to Scotland via the harbour at Leith. And they were brought here to be sold so that the authorities could keep an eye on what was going on. And there were rules. For example, first refusal was always given to freemen of the borough. And only after they had left what they didn't want to buy did everyone else get a chance. But the prices were favourable, they were fixed in advance, and you had to agree, if you bought anything, that you were not going to resell it. There was something called a trone, T-R-O-N, which was a weighing machine, provided by the borough to make sure that all the weights were fair, and round and about then gathered food stalls and some authority busybodies with wonderful job titles like beer taster, wine taster, or inspector of bread, to check the quality and they had power to destroy anything they thought was inferior. Or perhaps they would see that it was given to the poor, or to the lepers, who made this spot in Edinburgh their gathering place. So that's its first role then, as a market. But the Mercat Cross is also a place for announcements and proclamations. A tradition held even today, when there's going to be a general election, or a new monarch, the announcement in Scotland will be made here. And I have an extract from 1660, describing the proclamation that was made to tell the people of Edinburgh and Scotland that Charles II was being proclaimed king. A huge event, of course, the restoration of the monarchy after the Cromwell years. The description I have in front of me is from a book called A Diary of Public Transactions and Other Occurrences, Chiefly in Scotland, from 1650 to 1667, written by one John Nicholl. The wording takes you straight back to the 17th century and to the splendour of the occasion. Quote, this proclamation was proclaimed at the Mercat Cross of Edinburgh with all solemnities requisite by ringing of bells, setting out of belfries, sounding of trumpets, roaring of cannons, tooking of drums, dancing about the fires, and using all other tokens of joy for the advancement and preference of their native king to his crown and native inheritance. Well, isn't that marvellous? But actually just as interesting is that he goes on to explain how some of the celebrations got a little out of hand. There was drinking, rather too much drinking in some cases, and even the breaking of crockery. Quote, there was much wine spent, the spouts running and venting out abundance of wine, placed there for that end, and the magistrates and council of the town being present, drinking the king's health and breaking numbers of glasses. So, a market, a place for announcements and associated celebrations, but also very much a place associated with criminals. Petty criminals would be put in the stocks here and pelted with rotten vegetables, a 
and at the other end of the scale, it was the site for public hangings. So many public hangings, of which I've picked two just to give a little detail. One is part of the Civil War in 1650, the Marquis of Montrose, a staunch royalist who was defeated in 1645 and had to flee. He wasn't caught until five years later. He had spent five years on the run in Scotland. But when he was finally caught, he was brought into town, as described by one Mark Napier in his Memoirs of the Marquis of Montrose. And this is an eyewitness account. It's quite gory in that it starts with him giving some background, then stopping and writing in italics. Montrose is now being brought onto the scaffold. I must cut short. So he tells us that Montrose had been brought into town, quote, sitting tied with a rope upon a high chair, upon a cart, the hangman having taken off his hat and riding before him with his bonnet on. We find out that Montrose had bought a new suit and was determined to look splendid, splendid in a royalist sort of way, for his last public appearance. He was wearing, quote, a suit of pure cloth all laid with rich lace, a beaver and rich hat band, and scarlet silk stockings. There had been a trial of sorts the day before, at which he had said that he thought his cause was good, and that supporting the king, Charles I, was something he was still proud to do, proud, in fact, even, to share his fate of execution. Mark Napier reports his very words, quote, He was willing and did much rejoice that he must go the same way his master did. It was the joy of his heart, not only to do, but to suffer for him. He then reminds us what the gory fate is to be, to be hanged upon a gallows thirty feet high at the Edinburgh Cross, and then his arms and legs to be hanged up in other public towns in the kingdom, Glasgow and so on, and his body to be buried at the common burying place. He goes on then to describe the moment of hanging itself, explaining that the Marquis was calm and dignified right to the end, and commenting that this probably did a great deal to draw people to his cause. Quote, it is absolutely believed that he hath overcome more men by his death in Scotland than he would have done if he had lived, for I never saw a more sweeter carriage in a man in all my life. And then, more than 200 years later, in 1864, there occurred the last public hanging to take place on this spot, that of one George Bryce, who had been convicted of murdering a cook from one of the Edinburgh's big houses. He had a relationship with a nursery-maid from the same house. The cook thought he was an evil character and tried to talk her colleague out of seeing him. And when George Bryce discovered this, he went to the house, talked his way in, found the cook and killed her. Whatever you think about the justice of hanging him, it's certainly true that the actual day was quite a grisly affair because it's believed that some 20,000 people came to witness it. Maybe it was at this point that it was decided that hanging people in public should no longer be done. We have, again, an eyewitness account of this, written by one Lord Coburn, who was a Solicitor General and Lord of Session, so held the sessions in the nearby courthouse. He wrote his memorials, published after his death, I think, and described what happened on this particular day, the 21st of June, 1864. He writes of the morbid curiosity of the crowd, who'd come to watch the black-painted gibbet being set up, and see the scaffold draped in black cloth, and he describes the atmosphere. Quote, in the hope of making some extra money, the proprietors of cheap refreshment rooms opened their premises, and many were the stray customers that were tempted hurriedly to regale themselves on the stale commodities of these establishments. 
Many of the spectators, tired after the long night, slept in the cold draughty stairs and closes nearby. But the ghouls were up and about at an early hour, and by 6am the whole area outside the barricade was occupied. Others, thankfully, had different motives, and conspicuous in the crowd were preachers and groups singing psalms and holding aloft boards covered with extracts from the scriptures. He then describes the arrival of the executioner and the Edinburgh Council officers, dressed in uniform, followed by, quote, the condemned man flanked by two ministers. He describes the last prayer being said, Bryce mounting the scaffold and having a white hood placed over his head, and then he describes the moment when the crowd suddenly seemed to realise the enormity of what they'd witnessed. Quote, Finally, as the body dropped, the previously noisy, boisterous crowd hushed, hit by the reality of the situation. Within seconds, hundreds of those present were in tears. If you look on the pavement at the corner of the High Street and George Bridge, you will see three brass blocks set in the pavement in the shape of an H, marking the exact spot where the gallows was usually set up. And talking about things set into the pavement, just outside St Giles you will find a heart-shaped marker, known as the Heart of Midlothian, the spot on which the notorious toll booth stood. Perhaps the most feared building in Edinburgh, built originally in the 14th century, it housed the High Court, it sometimes housed the Parliament or the Council Chambers, but most notoriously it was a prison. A place of dreadful conditions, feared by everybody. There was an inscription above the entrance which had lines like the following, a place where none can thrive, and a grave for men alive. And while you're up in this corner of the city, you're surely going to want to pop into St Giles. I got a guidebook from St Giles which calls it St Giles Cathedral, but I've also read that, strictly speaking, it perhaps should be called the High Kirk of Edinburgh. It's not actually the seat of a bishop, therefore, I think, do let me know if I'm wrong, not technically a cathedral. Anyway, the historian Christopher McNabb, in his book A History of Edinburgh, describes it quite well as a visible symbol of Edinburgh's turbulent spiritual past. And yes, the story of what happened inside this building is quite colourful. So there's the building in the 12th century, the rebuilding, the being burnt down by English troops, fighting for Richard II, the addition in the 15th century of the Gothic steeple, and then the moment for which it's best known, the period from 1559, when the preacher here was one John Knox. Yes, the Protestant firebrand was the minister here for 13 years. He raged against what he called idolatry. He saw to it that the medieval altar was swept away. He had the walls whitewashed. Lots of the church's ornaments were sold. All this because he wanted to do away with Catholicism and introduce a much plainer, simpler version of Christianity. This, of course, set him very much against Mary, Queen of Scots, who, while relatively happy not to interfere with Protestant services, did insist on carrying out her own religion in private, and even that was far too much for him. The story continues into the 17th century. Charles I came to Edinburgh for his coronation, or his Scottish coronation, and while he was there, he noticed this very plain Calvinist form of worship, said he didn't like it much, and caused uproar. So, for his next move in 1637, he introduced a new prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer, and decreed that it should be used here in St Giles, which it was, first on the 23rd of July, 1637, when things got 
quite lively. And there's a lovely description of this in Michael Fry's book, Edinburgh, A History of the City. And he explains how the new form of service got underway, with words, in fact, which you will recognise if you're familiar with the Anglican service today. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Unrest was beginning, and got worse, as the Reverend James Hannay recited the Ten Commandments, and invited the congregation to respond, which they did, but not, as he had hoped, with, Lord have mercy upon us, but with shouts of, false, anti-Christian. And here is Michael Fry himself, explaining what happened next. Others, raucous stallholders from the high street, or loud-mouthed harridans from the closes, or rowdy apprentice lads, bawled out some of the 17th century's saltier insults. Beastly belly-god, crafty fox, ill-hanged thief, Judas. The hubbub grew so loud that the Bishop of Edinburgh, the Right Reverend David Lindsay, intervened and called for silence. When he got it, more or less, he told Hannay to go on and read the collect for the day. According to legend, this was too much for Jenny Geddes, an old woman who sold herbs by the Tron. She started up and shouted, Out, thou false thief! Dost thou say mass at my lug? Lug, of course, being an ear, as in lug hole, if you use such a word. To go back to Michael Fry, quote, Then, taking the stool on which she rested her creaking bones in church, she hurled it at the bishop's head. Modern historians have decided Jenny never existed. In that case, it was necessary to invent her. She represented a people who would put up with no more corruption of their religion. Strong stuff. And the following year, 1638, the National Covenant was signed in Edinburgh, a document which accepted Charles I as King of Scotland, but did not accept that he was head of the Scottish Church. That's certainly the most intriguing and exciting moment of the history of St Giles, I think. Other moments of note between then and now would include the 19th century, when the church was restored and a new organ installed, the one you can see today, 4,000 pipes, no less. And 1911, when the medieval-style chapel, the Chapel for the Order of the Thistle, was installed. So then, when you go to visit St Giles, what is it you should be looking out for? As with most of these big churches, there's so much, it's very easy to get lost in the detail. Perhaps you just want to go a-wandering, and I'm just going to mention a few things that you might look out for. There are lots of memorials to people, a bronze portrait of Robert Louis Stevenson, for example, a memorial to the Marquis of Montrose. Both of those can be seen on your way up the right-hand side of the cathedral, towards the Thistle Chapel, which is definitely a good place to stop. This being the place where the most ancient and most noble Order of the Thistle meet to worship. So the Order of the Thistle is the Scottish equivalent of the Knights of the Garter, founded by James II, or James VII as he was in Scotland, and still going strong today. So 16 knights or ladies chosen by the sovereign, usually announced on St Andrew's Day, the 30th of November, and this is their church. So inside the chapel you will find the sovereign's stall and 16 stalls for the knights and ladies, a coat of arms for each of them, of course, and the most amazing carvings, both wooden and stone. There are stone carvings of leaves and fruits from dozens of different plants, all native to Scotland, and there are carvings to mark all the things you would expect. The Royal Arms, St Giles, St Andrew, the badge of the Order of the Thistle, of course. 
and one symbol repeated all over the chapel, what else? The national flower of Scotland, the thistle. Other memorials you might look out for as you carry on past the chapel and round to the other side? The Marquis of Argyll, great enemy of the Marquis of Montrose, from the other side. He it was who had the Marquis of Montrose executed. He then was executed himself just a few years later. There's a very imposing statue of John Knox. And one of the features of the cathedral, which is remarked upon in all the guidebooks, is the windows. Huge stained glass windows on religious themes. So the north window, Jesus stilling the tempest, and the great east window, retelling the Easter story with the Last Supper and Christ's entry into Jerusalem. The west window, equally huge and splendid, is in fact not religious in theme. That's known as the Burns window, put up in memory, of course, to the poet Robbie Burns. The top section being a big red rose, a reference to his poetry. There are war memorials too for World War I and World War II, and memorials to various Scottish regiments, for example the Seventh Scots, remembering the dreadful story of what happened to them in May 1915. They were put on a train from Edinburgh down to Liverpool, en route to Gallipoli, but there was a rail disaster at Gretna Green, and more than 200 of them were killed. There's a memorial too to the 16th Royal Scots, and a little plaque saying that when they set off to fight in World War I, they included among their number the whole of the Heart of Midlonian football team. Only one third of them made it home. So there's lots to see and a bit of a wander and some reading of the notes and plaques. Certainly an interesting thing to do. However, if you want to go a little further, you might like to know that there are lots of concerts held at St Giles. On many Sundays at 6pm, there are concerts of religious music of all different sorts. And on weekdays, usually lunchtime, 12 to 1, that sort of time, there's an even greater variety of other sorts of music performed. So that would be a moment to sit in beautiful, peaceful surroundings, listen to something lovely, and maybe just reflect on the turbulent history of that building. And the other building on the Royal Mile that I wanted to come back to is the John Knox House, just down on the left past St Giles. John Knox was possibly, although there is strong competition, Edinburgh's most controversial inhabitant. In his History of Edinburgh, Christopher McNabb describes him, possibly with a certain amount of understatement, as, quote, a quite brilliant preacher of extremely sharp mind and violent passions. His views sit ill at ease with today's society. Yes, I think you can certainly agree with that when you start to hear some of the things he said. Just know, for example, that the most famous pamphlet he wrote was entitled the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. So, this is the house where it's believed he lived, although apparently there is some doubt about that, but it's worth visiting if you're interested in him, because it will give you certainly a sense of the era in which he lived, the dark, low ceilings, the 16th century furniture, etc., and a strong sense of the story of him and his quarrels with Mary, Queen of Scots, and of his views. There are quotes all around giving a flavour of some of his more strident views. You can learn a lot about the most interesting part of the story, which is perhaps from the arrival back in Scotland of Mary, Queen of Scots. He wrote about that, claiming that the whole earth was against her. The weather showed it. This is how he put it. The very face of heaven at the time of her arrival did manifestly speak of darkness and all impiety. There was corruption of the air. The mist was so thick and so dark 
that scarce might any man espy another, the length of two pair of butts. The sun was not seen to shine two days before, nor two days after. That forewarning gave God unto us, but alas, the most part were blind. Yes, the whole earth knew, says Knox, that Queen Mary wasn't going to be a good thing, but unfortunately, some of her subjects didn't realise it. He saw it very much as his mission to put them right. Things didn't get off to a very good start, because on the very first Sunday she was back in Edinburgh, Mary went to Mass at Holyrood. So, a week later, John Knox is in his pulpit at St Giles, telling everybody that a single Mass is more dangerous than, and I'm quoting, 10,000 armies. Two days after that, Mary held a banquet at the castle, and then a procession down the Royal Mile to Holyrood. The procession entailed all the sorts of things he wasn't going to like. It was showy, it was splendid. But somebody, possibly Knox himself, had arranged a surprise for her, halfway down. Here's Michael Fry, author of Edinburgh, A History of the City, explaining what happened. She marched along with a gold-fringed purple canopy held over her head. Fifty youths, dressed as moors in black masks and yellow suits, capered before her. By the cross, girls in diaphanous dresses posed as mythological figures, while wine flowed from the fountain at its foot. OK, so that's Mary having her say. But when Mary reached the Tron, a child came down out of a painted cloud and presented her with the keys to Edinburgh, then with two books in rich velvet bindings. She opened them. One was a copy of the Bible in English, not Latin, the other a book of Psalms, symbols of Protestantism. She handed them without a word to the Earl of Huntley, a Catholic nobleman standing next to her. He later reported that, as she moved off again, he felt obliged to stop some people about to burn the effigy of a priest. So that very much sets the tone. Knox, of course, was never going to back down, kept raging against Catholicism from his pulpit, and making it very clear that he was never going to give up St Giles. As he put it, to give the place to the devil, who was the chief inventor of the mass, they could not. He was given to threatening that violence would ensue if anyone tried to take St Giles away from them. They could not, he said, quote, suffer idolatry to be erected in the same unless by violence they were constrained to do so. And he had lots, but really lots too, to say about how people should live their lives. And just to finish with one more, quote, here's a list of things that he said he was very much against. Quote, Drunkenness, excess, be it in apparel or be it in eating and drinking, fornication, oppression of the poor, buying or selling by wrong measure, wanton words and licentious living. And just finally then I wanted to make mention of two other churches, one of which is on the Royal Mile and one isn't, but which both have connections to all of this. So further down the Royal Mile from the John Knox House, on Canongate in fact, you will find on the left Canongate Kirk, built in the 17th century under James the Seventh or James the Second of Scotland and England, and built for what reason? Well, because James was holding Catholic services at Holyrood, he expelled non-Catholics and they promptly went and built their own church just up the road. And this was it. It is at Canongate Kirk that the Queen worships when she is in Edinburgh. And it's also quite well known for its cemetery, there being some significant Edinburgh folk buried there. Adam Smith, for example. And the poet Robert Ferguson, who died aged only 24, was buried there in a pauper's grave, but for whom Robbie Burns, who had been an admirer of his, 
decided to pay for and have erected a headstone. And actually just outside the church on the pavement is a statue of Robert Ferguson himself. And the second church with a bearing on this story is Greyfriars Kirk, not that far from the Royal Mile if you go down one of the closest towards the grass market and then up a little way the other side, you will find it. Built in the 17th century, opened in fact on Christmas Day, 1620, but famous most of all because it was here in 1638 that the National Covenant was signed. So that's the Scottish clergy expressing their loyalty to King Charles, yes, but rejecting absolutely his attempts at imposing religious reform on them. Thousands of people signed it here, then copies were made of the document and taken all round Scotland, and in total, some 300,000 signatories collected. This church is also very well known for its graveyard, but I'm saving the various stories connected with that for a later episode. So suffice to say now, it is a cemetery collected with body snatching, with the murders of the infamous Burke and Hare in the 1820s, with various other ghost stories, and of course, with Greyfriars Bobby, the little dog whose loyalty to his master is still being talked about centuries later. So all of that to come in a few episodes time, but for now I hope you feel a little better acquainted with a road I've seen described as the spine and heart of the old town of Edinburgh, the Royal Mile. I picked up a little booklet called Edinburgh on Foot, published I think by the tourist office, which summarises all the exciting things that will become familiar if you know a little bit about what's happened in the Royal Mile over the centuries. You will know, quote, all the history which goes with a long association with royal intrigue, political, legal and religious conflict, intellectual and academic debate, peace, war, murder, robbery and general mob violence. And they neglect to mention, but it's also true, that you will also find the shops, the pubs, the tartans, the shortbread. And why not? OK, so if this episode has been an attempt at the grand sweep of history up and down the Royal Mile, next week's episode is going to stay here in the Old Town and look more at the lives of ordinary people there across the centuries and at the places you can visit today to find out more. All of that to come then, but for today, it just remains for me to thank you very much for listening and to say goodbye, both of which I think I can do in Gaelic. So let's have a go. Tarpa leave, agus marshin leave. <laughs>